And welcome back to the Sporting Spirit with your hosts Carl and John. And you know, there's been a, a lot of uh, things and topics going on in in the sports world at the moment. And yeah, John. So what do you want to highlight uh, today? Before we get into the sport, Carl, I want to just talk about the environment because obviously that's been a big issue over the last couple of days, couple of weeks, and. Yeah, I think as everyone knows, um, the big fires on the West Coast and places like California, Oregon, and Washington State burn about 5 million acres of land, 5 million acres, and, and killed about 36 people. That's not only affected the daily lives of people on the West Coast, but it's affected sport as well and pro sports. Last weekend was meant to be the start of the um, National Women's Soccer League, the NWSL. Um, the games, they were postponed. A lot of training practices for West Coast teams were postponed as well. Um, and so, yeah, it's affected, as I said before, sport, um, in a big way. And in many ways, it, it brings together what we talked about with, um, Madeline Orr from the sport ecology, ecology group, um, and the episode, which we did a couple of weeks ago now. And yeah, without a doubt puts the spotlight again on sports role in sustainability and, it's certainly something which we'll keep you updated with, and, and we think it's is huge considering the current, yeah, the current issue at hand. Um, in terms of other issues, Carl, have you got any sport related or more spe- specific sport related um, updates for us? Yeah, I want to give a highlight, more of a maybe a positive news or like a, it's a positive uh, progression at least that mm-hmm. now when it comes to labor rights, we, we talk a lot about equal pay, especially for the national team between men and women in, in soccer or football. And now it's been decided that Brazil and uh, now also England has decided to introduce equal pay uh, for the men and uh, women's national team. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, Norway and Finland had already introduced it. It's, there's a discussion back home in Sweden about it. Uh, but the Swedish Football Federation have, haven't done it yet, which I think is quite unfortunate. Uh, because in my worldview, I feel like equal pay is just, it should be natural, should be up there. And uh, to the people out there that said like, oh, it's but it's the market that decide. Uh, the men's team makes a lot more money than the women's team. And to that notion, I would say that there's nothing in the statutes or in the mission statement from the Federation that state that we're a for-profit organization. We like the the role of the player is to make us money. They say it is to represent the country. It is to perform on a high level at international competitions and is to inspire a nation and people. And if you just look at the Swedish teams, like in the last World Cup for the women, the Sweden uh, took bronze and uh, for the men, in the men's World Cup, Sweden went to the quarterfinals. And it's quite hard also to quantify how you, like how you inspire a nation and a, and a people. Uh, so for me, it's just natural that it should be equal pay. Yeah. And I just to like summarize that I just want to use a quote from the Swedish player, Kosovar Eslani. Uh, she's the player for Real Madrid and she's always been very vocal on social media. A couple of years ago, she called out Real Madrid that they didn't have a, a women's team. And now she's joined a debate about equal pay and she posted on Instagram and I will, read you a short snippet of it so quote if you ask anyone male or female player for a national team they would uh, nobody would say that they play for money nobody is 
It's an honor to represent Sweden and I love every minute, but it's about respect and pursuit for equality. We want to be a generation that makes a difference for the next generation, unquote. Absolutely. I think that's a very pertinent statement by her. And, and just to sort of touch on what you mentioned earlier, because even I think if we take into account the, the economics of it, right? Um, we did some research, myself and Carl, just before the show to, to bring up some stats on, on whether or not the women's team actually earns less in terms of commercial revenues, in terms of, yeah, the profits from, from the games they play and, 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 and the sort of merchandise that they sell. And the U.S. Soccer Federation essentially governs the men's and women's um, teams. And if we look at from the year 2016 to the year 2018, the women's team actually generated 900,000 more revenue than the men's in terms of revenue generated from the games played. Um, in the 2015 World Cup, the women's games actually generated almost 2 million more than the men's game. That was in 2015. So I think even if you were to use the argument that somehow the men's soccer team earns, earns more than the women's soccer team just from a commercial slash games point of view, that would be a false narrative. I think it's systemic discrimination against women, which is the issue at hand. And it's something which needs to be talked about, I think, uh, more clearly and with facts like these, because at the end of the day, um, the spreadsheet shows that women, women's football brings at least the same or even more in terms of revenue um, compared to the men's game. So, Yeah, and, but yes, yeah, I said, for me, it's quite irrelevant when it comes to revenue, just based on the mission statement of the federations themselves. Absolutely. Um, and on that point, um, we'll leave it there because we've talked quite enough already. And, and we'll move into our topic for this week and our interview with um, an expert in a very different field as well from the last couple of weeks. We are speaking to um, a linguistics expert and a sports writer and author about sports terminology being used by politicians. So without much further ado, let's get it. And on today's show, we're joined with um, Danieli Kanepa. Danieli is a campaign facilitator at the NGO Mission 89, which deals with the trafficking of young footballers, which you can check out more on their website, mission89.org. But more importantly for today, Danieli is a writer and copywriter, and his background is in linguistics. His thesis, titled Metaphors in English Football, deals with the sort of language or sporting language used in English football and English press, really. Um, Daniele, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So, so first of all, Daniele, what are you up to at the moment? What are you working on? Well, I'm, um, I'm currently writing a book about um, uh, human trafficking, in, especially in football, uh, but you know, more in general in, uh, in sports. Mm -hmm. And the, the title is going to be Fino a che punto, right? because the book is in Italian. Sure. Fino a che punto means until, until what point. So until what point is it? okay to try and pursue a career in professional sports this is the question from which my book uh starts mm -hmm. you know? yep. and then i um i also work with uh, um, a london-based organization called trinity college london that's totally different from uh from sports it's an exam board 
which assesses people's uh, performance in um, performing arts, music, and English language. My background okay. is, uh, is as, a, as an English uh, language teacher. Okay, perfect, perfect. So, um, because you have obviously experience covering um, sports, but particularly in Italy, um, as a writer and copywriter, um, what, what are some examples of sort of sport jargon, sport lexicon used by politicians? Look, there are, there are quite a few. There are quite a few. And uh, they obviously depend on the country, language, and, and culture. Uh, so, for example, soccer uh, related metaphors. Uh, I say soccer because I, I don't want to. No, that's completely fine. American football. We've huh? got an American audience as well. So, yeah. Um, oh, all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah How big, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, soccer related metaphors are, are, are common in European countries and European mm. uh, languages. While, for example, American football related uh, uh, metaphors and, uh, for example, uh, baseball related metaphors or even basketball related metaphors are mm. quite common in the US. And I'm sure that if you had a look at, you know, other cultures and other languages that, you know, for example, I, I, that, that I don't speak, you'd find, you know, uh, similar uh, examples. Um, to probably to answer, uh, well, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an answer to your mm. question and probably uh, I'll have to expand of, on what we actually mean by metaphor. But anyway, talk about um, um, linguistic expressions of metaphors. Uh, for example, I was reading a, an article a couple of days ago where uh, it was uh, on an American uh, website and they were talking about uh, the Democrats being in need of a hate, uh, of a Hail Mary to beat mm -hmm. President Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, and as we know, you know, a Hail Mary is a, is a last second, almost last ditch effort to try and win a, a football game sure. when things are desperate for the team that, that is trailing. Or, for mm -hmm. example, other expressions that we find in, uh, in politics, we, we can find, for example, to score a known goal. Oh, for example, whistleblowing. We mm -hmm. talk about it when it uh, in in politics but for example in uh in e economics as well yeah and another one typical one is to take the field and i'm probably going to refer to that one uh later on because this um uh this expression which in italian is scendere in campo scendere in campo is to take the field mm -hmm. it was largely used um by our former prime minister uh, mr berlusconi Okay, so these are just some examples uh, of, you know, common, um, common words, common expressions, which are used in sports, but they can also apply to, um, you know, to, to politics. And uh, we, we often draw on, on sports language and, and, and we often uh, use the sports metaphor also to talk about other concepts. You know, there are a lot of baseball metaphors for sex, for example. But, uh, you know, I won't go in any oh, that's another That's another episode, I think. But. Yeah. No, but uh, as you mentioned, there's a lot of examples of, uh, of sport terms used. I can see it in my home country in Sweden as well. It's a lot of football terms that are used. And the question is, like, why do politicians use sport terms uh, in their talk and not any other sort of terms? 
Well, I guess it's because, um, you know, obviously politicians want to get vote, okay? They want to get elected. And mm -hmm. to do that, they need to uh, speak with their audience on, you know, using, and they need to use language that is accessible to their audience. So I guess because common people are very familiar with what sports are about. So certain politicians uh, use examples and words from, from sports because they might be easier to grasp for their audience. But in my opinion, this, isn't, this is not necessarily a bad thing. So just, you know, let me explain better. Uh, sports are often overlooked or even snubbed when it comes to intellectual uh, discussions and intellectual debate. But sports are actually a very, very big part of our lives. Wh whatever country in, in the world you live in, you were talking about Sweden, you know, football, probably ice hockey here in Italy, football where I live, water polo is very big. So sports are a very big, very big part of our life. So uh, uh, we all have, you know, experience of watching sports or doing sports. So I think it's quite normal that uh, now sport is a, is a mm, you know, simple concept, a source domain, and then mm -hmm. maybe later on I'll explain this expression, source domain, to understand more complex concepts, more, concept, more complex conceptual domains. And politics is a complex uh, domain. And so that's why politicians, I think, will even resort to uh, using uh, sports vocabulary more and more. Uh, whether this is, you know, whether it's the politician's attitude to treat the audience like small babies who need to be taught things in very simple uh, words, or whether it's whether the politician's attitude is to, to use uh, sports-related vocabulary to try and establish good uh, communicative ground for effective communication. This, I think, obviously depends on the intentions of the single politician. Uh, there's, a, there's a former American politician that I find very interesting for, for his unorthodox positions. Mm, yeah. His name is Jesse Ventura. He used to be a wrestler and, uh, you know, a Hollywood actor. Sure. But he's also, not, not many people know, he's the former governor of Minnesota. And when he got elected, uh, it was one of the very few governors in U.S. history who got elected as an independent. So he didn't run with the Republicans nor with the Democrats. And when he won, he made a speech where he compared the campaign to um, Mohammed Ali uh, beating, if I remember correctly, George Foreman and shocking the world, or, or Sonny Liston, sure. if I remember. And, and also, uh, he, uh, he said, we're like the American hockey team in, I think, 1980, who shocked the world by defeating the Russians who were favored. <laughs> and, you know, the, the whole crowd erupts mm -hmm. when he says that. That's because uh, I think, you know, knowing a bit about Jesse Ventura, he was really trying to speak the language of the, the people who was trying to make, you know, a, a connection with them. Sure. And, uh, you know, so in that sense, uh, you know, if there's that type of respect from the politician mm -hmm. towards the audience, I think uh, using sports vocabulary, sports metaphors is not bad. Yeah, and I think in some ways what you touched about perhaps is the fact that, you know, politicians try to sort of 
are, tr- are saying essentially by using sport terminology that listen, I'm, I'm one of you guys, you know, I'm one of mm-hmm. your own. And so, you know, and we've done this together. Um, and it's, it's not me using complex lexicon, um, you know, it's not me as this, you know, intellectual being on stage. Yeah. It's me as one of you who goes to the stadium, who goes home afterwards, who's sad and happy. And, you know, I think that's quite, uh, quite, first of all, quite clever by politicians and also quite important to understand um, when we sort of, yeah, are trying to understand, you know, the use of sport jargon in, in politics. I totally agree. Uh, I was reading a, a book uh, the, the other day and um, one of the authors in this book is the histo- British historian Arnold Toynbee. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about the, the problem, the big problem that our society has of the distance between the intellectuals, so-called intellectuals and the masses. The fact that intellectuals are in their ivory tower and, you know, they speak only amongst uh, each other and they, you know, they speak, they use words that common people don't understand. So common mm. people even lose faith sure. in these people who should be the intellectual guides for society. Mm-hmm. So I guess if, you know, an intellectual, a politician, a scientist, we're talking about, you know, you know, healthcare issues all the time with this COVID thing. And, you know, if, you know, doctors start using language that is accessible to people, then they will help, uh, you know, people understand. And uh, I think that's the way that progress happens in society. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a lot of benefits, as is mentioned, with, with the sports arm to connect with the people. Mm, but mm. are there any instances of like where there can be a problem, like a downside with using sport terms by politicians? Yeah, as it, yeah, this is a good question. You, you know, as I was saying, I think it, it's, it really depends on the politician's attitude. Um, do they use sports only because they want to get votes? So, uh, you know, they oversimplify things in a way that it's just easy for them to get votes. Or are they resorting to sports metaphors and um, sports-related linguistic expressions, again, to communicate an idea at a level which is accessible to the audience? I think it, it goes down to, you know, answering that, you know, uh, basic question, which is very difficult to answer because we never know what is inside a human being. Absolutely. And, yeah, sure, moving, moving on from that, Daniela, you being obviously... I'm a proud Genoese as well. Um, being from Italy, that there's one single political figure that has been highly affiliated to sports, and there's no other than than you know, as you said before, Silvio Berlusconi, the former um, yeah prime minister of, of of Italy. And what what is his relationship to sport? Can you give us a bit of background on him for for listeners out there from the states, perhaps who are not so well sort of versed uh, about Italian politics? Okay, yeah, well, um, um, first of all, Silvio Berlusconi uh, has been probably, not now, okay, but let's say from 1994 until at least 2014, uh, he was the most important um, political figure in Italy. And uh, he, um, you know, 1994, he was already 58 years of age, and uh, his previous part of his career was uh, as a businessman and um, you know yes he's got a very uh, strong connection his political success he was the the prime minister of Italy I think in probably three or four different periods but in those uh, more or less 20 years he you know like 
one, uh, one in two years he was the, the Prime Minister of Italy. So um, his political uh, success comes from his success as a businessman. Um, you know, the, 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 um, at the beginning he was a, a builder, he had a building company. Mm -hmm. The circumstances under which he found a huge amount of money to invest as a builder, which was his first business activity, are very dark. Um, but anyway, I won't talk about uh, that in detail. But he had two intuitions. I think from certain points of view, we can say that he happened to be the right person at the right time. Because in the 80s, beginning of the 80s, he bought um, AC Milan, which is, you know, probably the uh, second or, um, the, sorry, the, the club with the second or third uh, largest fan base in Italy. And, you know, also has a lot of supporters around the world. So he, he took over AC Milan in the mid eighties. And at the same time, at the same time, he also went national with three private TV channels. And he changed the way of making TV programs in Italy because before his private channels, there were only uh, state channels, so national TV. And that was very, you know, the style was very sober, uh, black and white, whereas Berlusconi hugely uh, pushed for, um, you know, not just colors, but glittering lights and also half-naked women, which, you know, now is quite common in Italian TV. I don't know, you know, about your respective countries, but, uh, you know, uh, in Italian TV, it's now common to see, you know, half-naked women. But at that time, it was a total novelty. You know, Italy was, uh, you know, the, the Italy of the, after the Second World War was a strictly Catholic uh, country. So in other words, he established himself as an innovator. I think for a political man, it's uh, the type of frame that people have about you is, you know, uh, what makes you win or lose. And the frame of, uh, Mr. Berlusconi was, he established himself as an innovator, a man who broke the dogmas of the past, the black and white. Uh, you know, he changed from sober TV programs, introduced, uh, for example, TV series uh, um, from America. He started to air um, live uh, events from America, the NBA, the, the, the Super Bowl and all that. And he did the same. He established himself as an innovator with AC Milan. He put an incredible amount of money. Um, you know, he, uh, he, for example, he signed a player called Lentini. He used to play for the national uh, team for uh, uh, the equivalent of more or less 35 million euros. At that time, when you spent 5 million euros on a player, it seemed Making like records, yeah. Spent. 35 million euros. So big investments. And also employed a new coach uh, at the end of the 80s called Arrigo Sacchi. And Arrigo Sacchi introduced a totally different style to Italian soccer. And introduced uh, pressing mm -hmm. and zone marking, which, you know, probably for the American audience, if they're not, uh, you know, experts in, uh, in soccer, is, is a type of, of playing uh, soccer that was very different from the Italian style. 
the Italian style was uh, of, of playing football was very defensively minded. Mm. And the sort, of, the sort of Catinaccio sort of football. Catinaccio, yeah. yes, and the sweeper, the sweeper, mm. this, this player that was playing five, six meters behind the other centre-backs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, AC Milan, and, and, and he was successful. He won the equivalent, the old equivalent for the Champions League uh, twice in a row. He even won it a, a third time uh, on the same day that he was given the vote of confidence by the Senate when he took the field of politics, mm -hmm. as he said. So, uh, you know, I guess this new glittering TVs, this highly spectacular play, uh, way of playing football, which I personally don't like, but this is personal taste. All these things established Berlusconi as the new man on the stage in politics and, and the winning man. So when he took the field of politics, okay, so again, to mention a metaphor that he used that was coming from football, it was a very rec recognizable product, uh, so to speak. And a very sellable one because his, his uh, new party won the elections and Berlusconi decided to take the field of politics only three months before the national elections. So that's kind of a feat, even though not necessarily good for our country. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And um, a, a quote by this famous political analyst, um, Franco Pavoncello, um, who, who works at John Cabot University in Rome, right? He once said that the success of AC Milan definitely helped propel Berlusconi's political aspirations. And he went on to say, it is doubtful whether he would be prime minister now without that link. Now, that's a very, very big statement to make. Essentially saying that without this sport link, Berlusconi would not have been you know, the leader of Italy. Um, can you expand on this a little bit? I totally agree with that. Mm. I totally agree with that. I think it was, uh, you know, he used his successes in... Uh, and football to, you know, again, strengthen this idea of the new man, the winning man. And he introduced the football metaphor in, in politics. So I was talking about to take the field or for example, his new party, instead of founding uh, party sections, the new party was called Forza Italia. Now Forza Italia is the chant the Italian fans chant when they go to the stadium and, and the national team is playing. Okay. So again, that comes directly from football. So you've got that one, you've got the, to take the field, you've got the, 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 other, um, uh, the, the other metaphors that he introduced uh, that, that came from uh, uh, you know, the, the, the domain of, uh, of football. And he also introduced another uh, Another very powerful metaphor, the, the country is a, a business, the country is a company. So, uh, he, you know, he said um, the, the country must be run like a company. So, uh, you know, uh, for example, the, what does that mean in terms of political ideas? That meant that he wanted to privatize the pension system and he wanted to privatize the healthcare system. And unfortunately, unfortunately, especially with the healthcare system, unfortunately, in part, his plan uh, became a reality. And for example, the region that he's from, he's from Milan, and the region around Milan is called Lombardy. And Lombardy was the place that most suffered from deaths from COVID. 
you know, in March and April. Uh, the, the reasons must be investigated, but what is certain is that uh, the, in that region, the private healthcare system is very, very strong, whereas the public healthcare system is very, very weak as a result of those policies that Mr. Berlusconi uh, introduced. So I don't know if that answer, uh, answers your question. Yeah, absolutely does. Uh... Yeah, and as you mentioned that uh, his, his party, Forza Italia, they came out with the new policies and trying to change Italy as a country. But, and I'm just wondering, like, how did it change the political landscape in Italy? Yeah, he changed it a lot, a lot. Again, you know, he, um, he introduced a new type of language. Um, I could say from a certain point of view, a fresher language, which was closer to the common people. Mm. On the other hand, he did it superficially. I don't think his intention was, you know, we, we were talking about, uh, we were talking about it before. I, I think his intention was to seize power, you know, um, and to, you know, and he also had huge conflicts uh, of interests during his, his tenure as prime minister because he also retained his companies, especially his TV companies. But anyway, he, um, before Berlusconi, uh, the Italian political system uh, was not a two-party system. Um, you had uh, two big, uh, let's say three big parties, the Christian uh, um, Democrats, more, uh, um, you know, okay, they, they, they were closer to America. The Communist Party, which was close, obviously, to the Soviet Union. And it was a big party. The Communist Party in Italy got 25, 30% the national elections and um and then there was a socialist party which you know only the name was socialist because in fact a lot of members of the socialist party moved to berlusconi's forza italia mm. and uh, again in in a certain way berlusconi changed things in a way that kind of reflected what people saw in a football match because he said okay you're either with me or against me. So there was, you know, a kind of fracture. So you had the, when he took the field, uh, there was a, a center-left coalition, uh, mainly the, you know, the, the heirs of the, 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 the Communist Party, and the center-right where you had uh, pieces of the Christian Democrats, pieces of uh, the socialists, and pieces of other small parties and the former uh, social movement, which again is, let's say, the um, grandchildren, let's say, of the fascist party, mm -hmm. and Lega, which today is still, you know, a big uh, political party. So Lega and the, the, let's say, grandchildren of the fascist party and pieces of the Christian Democrats, they joined Berlusconi. The other forces, they uh, coalesced in the uh, center-left coalition. So again, and he started to use words like my adversaries, my opponents, uh, you know, the fact that he wanted to win. So these are all um, words and expressions that, again, he drew uh, from the, the football 
um, vocabulary. And this was a big fracture because politicians at the time when Berlusconi started his career as a politician, Italian politicians were very, very boring. Political discourse was very, very difficult for common people to understand. Mm. Uh, to, to close with this uh, answer, there was a, a very important uh, Christian Democrat politician called Arnaldo Forlani. He, uh, he was very close to becoming the, the president of the Republic. And he is famous for a quote. He said, I could talk, um, you know, about nothing for hours, you know. And this, I think, is, you know, it tells very well that, you know, that political discourse, that political speech was very, very distant from the common people. That's why Berlusconi was, with his fresh language, you know, uh, more uh, closer to common people, he was able in three months to, you know, make it to the role of prime minister. I think you've really broken down almost the, the sort of science, if you like, behind, you know, the, the reasons why Berlusconi used the sort of language that he did. And I don't want to stray off too much off the topic here, because obviously we're talking about quite um, a recent sort of um, recent past, if you like. But are there yeah. any... Or do you have any information of, of leaders from Italy's, let's call it, dark past? You know, we talk about the fascist regime and the, and the Mussolini, who sort of incorporated sport in their, let's call it, politics speak. Um, look, uh, I couldn't say, first of all, I, I would need more time to do research on that. But, um, for example, talking about Mussolini, my feeling, but again, I should do research on that. My feeling is that um, he didn't use sport-related vocabulary as much as Berlusconi did. It was a different time, you know, in the 30s, people, you know, in the 90s, with national TVs, even, you know, even, um, like, for example, people that don't, you know, that are not interested, let's say, in football, they knew about football. Whereas in the 30s, with no national TV, no TV at all, actually, uh, I think football was very popular and uh, Mussolini understood that and he did everything he could in order to, for Italy to win the World Cup in Rome in 1934 because he understood the, the, the kind of uh, propaganda that his political propaganda could benefit from that. But on the other hand, uh, I don't think... I can't recall of any speech of Mussolini making mm. specific references to football. While, you know, Berlusconi, everybody knew Berlusconi as, um, uh, you know, as a football man. Yeah, as a businessman, of course, but as a football man, the one that took AC Milan to the top of the world. And let me just say just one good thing about Berlusconi, because uh, I think I've, I've been quite harsh on him, yeah. is that... Uh, I think, for example, in football, he was not very good. I don't think he, uh, even though he boasts that he's got this great understanding of football, I don't think he has. But he surrounded himself with uh, very clever people. I think that's a very good quality for a leader to understand what your own limits are and to have, you know, capable people that can do the job for you. This is something which I think goes to his credit. And this is something which you think he applied both in in politics, of course, but as well as in sort of football, let's call it management, if you like, as a general term. Let's you know? say that in football, it worked better. In 
to work that well. <laughs> so you talked about that Berlusconi was almost the guy that introduced this uh, sport terminology in, in politics in Italy. And can you see that uh, politicians today in Italy have kind of like adapted this language so it's like more common now? And how do you see like the, the future of sport terminology in politics? It's just going to become more common? Okay, look... Um... Well, we, uh, yes, yes, there is uh, terminology that does come from football. For example, um, in Italy, we normally have coalitions because we don't have, you know, it's not like Britain having conservatives and labor uh, for a long time. We, we have these parties changing names all the time. Uh, even Forza Italia, today it's Forza Italia again, but it went through, I don't know, another four or five different names. So, uh, Yes, we have these coalitions and there's a kind of, uh, you know, way of naming these coalitions that is rem reminiscent of football. For example, the current government is, uh, you have the Democratic Party and the Five Stars Movement. Mm -hmm. And it's defined as the red-yellow government because Democratic Party is called red because they should be. Uh, in my opinion, there's really nothing in common, but they should be the heirs of the Communist Party. And the yellow, uh, sorry, and the, the, the yellow part is the Five Stars Movement, because I don't know if you know the logo. It's, it's a very big uh, political movement in Italy and a very interesting one. Sure. The logo has five yellow stars. And the former government, it was a coalition between the um, Five Stars Movement, yellow, and Lega, which is green. So it was called the Giallo Verdi, the Yellow Green Coalition. Now these, uh, you know, um, you know the, the fact of giving political coalitions uh, the certain colors, that clearly comes from the language of, of football. You know, uh, with, Absolutely. I don't know, Rossoneri, red, uh, black, or Bianconeri, white, yeah. black, or Nerazzurri, uh, Black, blue, it's Juventus, Milan, uh, Inter. So the, so the like a color-themed sort of, um, you know, um, yeah. So, so it's almost yeah. like, uh, not a coalition, it's almost like a team that you like, you cheer for yeah. and support. So you like, you support the team. It, exactly. And that's the sad, the, that's the sad side because people take sides rather than thinking, you know, every time what is the best solution Absolutely. it's it's you know that yeah and and also and also the five stars movement let's say it kind of changed the italian uh landscape again because again it was founded by a person who had nothing to do with formally nothing to do with politics a comedian called beppe grillo is from my city and a very innovative person and you know a very clever wise person and he, um, you know, he um, basically he, he created this uh, five stars uh, movement and again introduced a, a new type of, uh, of language. And he said, we're not with the right, we're not with the left, we're forward. And also he said, you know, we have to move on from the stadium mentality where I take sides. Mm. It's not about taking sides. It's about doing what is sensible in each uh, respective situation. Absolutely. So if, and I guess what he's trying to say is that, you know, um, in some ways, the use of sporting terminology or the mentality of sport in politics 
has polarized politics to the extent that people, you know, can't even see past the colors, the logos, you know, the players, if you like, which is big personalities. When when that, then it's about policy, not about the sort of paraphernalia, if you like. That's exact. It's like when you go to the stadium, and you know, I used to do it very often. And your the, a player from your team breaks the leg of an opponent of an opponent. You say, "Well done." And if a player from the other team does the same on your player, you'll say that he is the son of a gun. <laughs> <laughs> So you, lo- you lose your balance. Absolutely. You lose track of what is sort of in reality, yeah, perhaps not particularly <laughs> rational. But I think as sport fans, I think, yeah, it's difficult to be rational. But no, it's been a very, very interesting dis- discussion once more with you, um, Danieli. And we often like to wrap things up with a fun question. So knowing that you're a proud Genoese and also a Sampdoria fan, our question for you, of course, is what does the Derby of the Lantern mean to you personally? Look, uh, to me personally now, it doesn't mean much, to be honest. I used to be a heated supporter. I used to be a heated Sampdoria fan, okay. which is the other team in, in Genoa. And uh, I was lucky enough when I was a child at the pinnacle of Berlusconi's AC Milan. Sampdoria was also a great team. We played mm-hmm. the Champions League final. It looks like a dream now, or even more than a dream, but we, and we won the, the Cup Winners' Cup and we had amazing players. I was lucky enough to see them, to go to the stadium, to be old enough to, to see these fantastic players. At that time, Sampdoria and Genoa were uh, you know, fighting for the top positions in Serie A. Mm. And Serie A was a serious league at that time, not like today. where When you have one team winning nine leagues in a row that's not a that that's not i don't call it a game because in a game you don't know who's going to win or lose mm. you know if you already know who wins so you know i kind of lost my a bit of my interest in italian football and in the derby but i can tell you when i was a child if we lost the derby i would cry literally cry <laughs> Danieli, thank you very yeah, much for your you. time once more. And yeah, looking forward to, yeah, um, first of all, um, reading your book, which comes out. Um, oh, hopefully, yeah, in yes. Couple, in, in the next couple of months, we hope. Um, yeah. And yeah, speaking to you more about you know, the use of sporting terminology. Very, very happy to contribute. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. And so that was Danieli Kanepa talking about sports in the language of politics. And Carl, what's your take on it? Uh, thought it was a, a productive conversation we had w- uh, with him and kind of highlights this uh, idea that sports, it's a very a global language and it's something that everyone can relate to and understand. So it's, it's very common now that politicians to be able to connect to people is something they divert to. It's the sports terminologies, both, as he said, it could be in a good way, but it can also be in a bad way. Absolutely. And I think perhaps the section about Silva Berlusconi and how he used sporting terminology in his politics speak um, was for, particularly for me super, super interesting because I, I, I obviously I knew that Berlusconi was you know affiliated to AC Milan as the owner and I didn't quite realize how much of an impact sport actually had 
on his political fortunes as well and and uh, it's i think it's is really really interesting to hear that and nearly talk about um the fact that you know often for politicians um who use sporting terminology is more about form than substance so it's more about how they say things rather than what they actually say because if you say something in a way that enables you to connect with the local people then yeah essentially you're able to further your political agenda without even i guess people knowing it right um and i think also another interesting point which then made was the idea that and then with regards to Berlusconi, he was saying that how there was this introduction when Forza Italia came into into power, this introduction of um, a new form of language, a new a new way to do politics, um, which in many ways took a lot from sporting rivalries. Um, yeah, for me, that was yeah pretty much what I took away from it. And Carl? Yeah, yeah, it's also that uh, politicians like as our podcast is about like sport and politics and in this case it's like the politicians that are using sport for their personal gain or for mm -hmm. uh, their own purpose and because they yeah as they as we said like sport is such a powerful tool out there it can gain popularity uh, a lot more than maybe other issues that um, don't get as much attention in media uh, and it doesn't have just to be with the language it's just the just to be affiliated with a team or with a, a sport as well. And you can see, yeah, politicians that attend uh, the World Cup or the Olympics to get the, the media exposure uh, with the shirt on or with policies. For example, now in Hungary with Viktor Orban, that is a big football fan and he wants to uh, build up Hungary as well as how football was back in the, the glory days back in the 50s. And now I think since 2011, they have spent because of their new like tax system. They have by tax money they have spent around five billion euros on especially on football, and this is more money than Manchester City, PSG, and Chelsea have spent combined. Uh, so that just just tells you that the priority is to pump in money into football and maybe then neglect maybe you neglect education, healthcare because that doesn't get as much popular votes. Mm, absolutely. That's, that's absolutely insane. You can talk about those figures, 5 billion. Um, and, and yeah, I think historically there's been a lot of examples of, you know, politicians um, who come from a sporting background and don't, you don't have to look further than, you know, um, you know, people like Vitaly Klitschko, for example, who's the mayor of Kiev, um, who's I think a three-time heavyweight, Champion, um, George Weir, who's the president of Liberia at the moment, who was the first um, African Ballon d'Or winner in 1995. And so you have examples of these sporting icons, you know, elite athletes who have transitioned over into the realm of politics. And I guess Daniele gave us reasons for that today in terms of, you know, sort of explaining the importance of using sporting terminology in politics speak. But I think more importantly, coming from a sort of a sporting background where it's sort of dog-eat-dog -dog world and going into politics, which is similar, uh, which is about rivalries, which is about having a big personality and which is about pretty much being ruthless. This episode certainly is a step away from what we normally talk about in terms of the big 
social issues, um, whether it's with race or um, environment or, or labor rights. But it certainly reveals something behind the curtain um, to do with how sport is used in propaganda, essentially. In any case, um, we thank you a lot again once more for tuning in to our show. Um, we really appreciate your support. We've, we've come close now to getting about 300 listeners, so we are looking forward to achieving that mark. Um, and yeah, please, again, let us know what you think about the show, what you'd like to hear more of, what you'd like to hear less of, perhaps. Maybe you have me, me and Carl talking. Um, if you'd like the intros and the outros to be shorter, let us know. Um, I can't promise you that that will change because we do enjoy these segments of the show. Um, yeah, it was fun. And um, see you next time. Peace and love. Peace and love.